The word asexuality refers to the lack of sexual attraction toward other people, or in some cases, a very low or entirely absent desire for sex or sex-related things. Gray asexuality is a term that refers to the space between sexuality and asexuality. So the area between the desire for sex and no desire for sex, that's the spectrum that we're talking about here. And someone who identifies as being somewhere on the more asexual than sexual end of this spectrum falls under what's sometimes called the ace umbrella. Ace being a slang term for someone who is asexual, and that umbrella encompassing a variety of variations on the theme of asexuality. For instance, the term demisexual often refers to someone who doesn't necessarily, but might, lack a libido, a sex drive, but who can experience sexual attraction to someone after some other connection, like a strong emotional bond, has formed. The term semisexual is often adopted by folks who have a sex drive and who feel sexual attraction, but either experience it irregularly, maybe only for one person ever, or maybe for a year at a time before having a couple of years without much of one, or because they feel the drive to have sex but have no real desire to act upon that drive, at least with another person. And both sexual-ish and asexual-ish refer to people who are perhaps further to one end of the spectrum than the other, but still don't completely fit within a black-and-white category. They're mostly asexual, except for some aspect of asexuality where they deviate, or the same, but leaning more toward the typically sexual. An important component to understand about the world of asexuality is that generally, sexual orientation and interest are separated from romantic orientation and interest. So you could be uninterested in having sex with someone else, but be very interested in them romantically. And that means you could be heteroromantic or homoromantic in the sex that you want to be intimate with someone from the opposite or same gender. You could also be biromantic, into a bit of both, potentially, at least, or panromantic, which is a bit like pansexual in that you're interested in people, regardless of gender, and in this case, romantically interested instead of sexually. And just as with sex, you could also identify as being aromantic, not interested in being romantic with someone else, or not experiencing the drive to do so, which doesn't mean zero friendships or human bonds necessarily, it just refers to that specific type of relationship or bond that we often associate with romantic relationships. There are some other terms that have been coined or adopted by people who see themselves as part of the broader ace umbrella that I quite like and consider to be useful even for folks who are not part of the asexual spectrum. It's possible to be sexually attracted to someone and not romantically attracted to someone, for instance, or vice versa. But it's also possible to be aesthetically attracted to someone, to be really into them in terms of their appearance or style or vibe, and to feel a certain something for them, a feeling beyond mere casual interest, but not to have that something, that interest, tied up in lust or romance. It's also possible to have a sensual attraction to someone, in the sense that you want to be physically close to them, maybe share long hugs or a cuddle, or just enjoy each other's non-sexual company, and to never have any desire to take it further than that. Physical, non-sexual intimacy is the intended destination. 
And maybe my favorite of these relationship-ish categories is that of the squish, which is someone who you have a non-romantic crush on and want to be around all the time and who you perhaps want to be in physical contact with, like a cuddle buddy, but who you are not romantically or sexually attracted to. So that person would be your squish and you would be theirs. It's important to note, I think, that these various flavors of asexuality and asexuality-like categories do not imply sexual frustration or a lack of anything vital for happiness. There are happy and unhappy, fulfilled and unfulfilled gray ace people, just like there are sexual people. But someone who feels a sexual desire that is not being fulfilled and therefore experiences psychological stress as a consequence is potentially suffering from some kind of hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which is a real-deal sexual dysfunction in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Disorders used by psychiatrists. Ace folks typically do not feel that desire in the first place, and thus are not missing anything. They do not feel a lack in their lives, so the lack of a sex drive is not a problem. Also important to know here is that the world of asexuality and gray asexuality and the ace umbrella these are all fairly new concepts. New in the sense that now we've got labels for them that are not couched in the typical standards of the libido-driven world, that is. In the past, we may have called someone cold or frigid for not being interested in sex, which is a judgment based on non-relevant standards for that person. So these are not new definitions in the sense that they haven't been experiences people have had until now but they are new in the sense that they are now considered to be normal variations and feelings and experiences rather than negative traits or qualities for someone to have. We're also at the very beginning stages of studying this variation on human experience and desires because, again, this was a known thing up until quite recently, but not something that we had the language to distinguish in any meaningful and non-judgmental way. I've seen a few figures that indicate that maybe as much as 1% of the population falls somewhere closer to asexual than sexual on this spectrum. But the research behind that figure is not good, and the more honest assessment is that we really have no idea at all at this point. Complicating matters further is the fact that, just like anything related to human sexuality and preferences and so on, it's difficult to truly quantify this in a meaningful way, as it's all self-reported data which means it's tough to do research on it, partly because different people will measure low libido in different ways, and partly because we as complex entities are not great at knowing ourselves in granular detail. It's possible to be something for which we have a label and not realize it for decades, if ever. It's also possible to apply the wrong labels to ourselves because of social or familial pressures or to never quite fit squarely into any of the available boxes and to apply something that behaves more like a cookie cutter than it does a useful definition. Chopping off all of our interesting parts and leaving only those that can be measured by people who are not us. The world of asexuality is fascinating to me, in part because it allows us to see in real time a group of people figuring themselves out, working through the imperfections of labels and developing the language necessary to communicate something about themselves to the world, while also trying to understand things about themselves that previously may have been unclear because of our limited understanding and vocabulary. It's also fascinating, though, because it's one small facet of a trend that has been noted in young people today. And that trend is defined by measurably less interest 
in sex and everything that goes with it to a degree that older demographics are becoming a little bit concerned about what might happen next. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The human libido, also sometimes called the sex drive, manifests as a desire to have sex, to engage in the act of procreation, but not necessarily in order to procreate. The shape and scope of a person's libido is influenced by countless factors, from our individual biologies to what happened at work on a particular day, to the cold we caught or chemical depression that we suffer from or what we ate for breakfast and how aware we are of the fact that we will die someday in that particular moment. All of these things can make us feel randier than usual or a little ho-hum about the subject of sex. It can cause us to crave particular things or relatively edgier or more vanilla things. It can impact our behavior and even the degree to which we respond to medications and other substances. And it's inextricably connected to our growth, our neurological and psychological development, our social behaviors and relationships, and adjacent types of related but non-sexual pleasure that we experience. Libido, then, is not just how much someone wants to have sex. It's a tangle of interconnected feelings and behaviors, moderated by a tangle of interconnected bodily systems and external influences, blended by the sharp blades of social expectation and spliced with a whole lot of ignorance and taboo and tradition that can cause us to further misunderstand things that are already devilishly complex and tricky to grok. One of the more relatively straightforward components of this collection of variables is our body's reward system, which is a collection of primarily neural structures that incentivize us to do all kinds of useful things, like eat and learn and work together with other humans and procreate so that we keep passing on our genetic materials to future generations. Pleasure is a primary tool of this system, and there are many types of pleasure that are used by this system to motivate us to perform these ostensibly positive biological behaviors. Many or most of us enjoy food, for instance, because without food, we die. And our ancestors that were more likely to seek out and consume certain foods were more likely to survive and pass on their genes to us. The genes that caused their bearers to eat to survive were passed on. Working together with others also provided a survival benefit to those who did it. So we have all kinds of mechanisms that flood us with all kinds of positive feelings when we feel kinship or friendship with someone or share a hug or a cuddle or a kiss with a loved one. Most of us also experience some kind of pleasure when we have sex. And the act of sex on the biological level can help us develop bonds with others. But very importantly, it's what helps us procreate to propagate the species to keep our genetic information alive and available for the next generation to make use of. The mesolimbic pathway, which is a collection of neurons in our brain that releases dopamine under certain circumstances, is just one of the pathways that keep our brain stimulation reward functions in balance, which in practice means that the mesolimbic pathway delivers pleasure chemicals to the right portions of our brains when we've done something that biology approves of, and it's just one of many components that does so. There are numerous brain and body systems that work together to reward biologically beneficial behaviors so that we will be more likely to continue performing those behaviors in the future. We are complex, clever animals, though, 
and we've become aware of these systems, and as a result, even before we understood how they were put together, the mechanisms that made them tick, we started abusing them. We can trigger pleasure chemical release by using drugs, for instance. We can also have sex for fun rather than procreation, and eat for enjoyment rather than for sustenance. Theoretically, all of these behaviors, including indulging in food rather than using food as fuel, could also have other biologically important purposes. As I mentioned a few moments ago, for instance, one potential benefit of sex beyond reproduction is the ability to build strong bonds between non-kin individuals, which can be a powerful advantage. But in general, these are seen as adaptations meant to keep us on the biological up and up, meant to help us pass on our genes and propagate the species. That in mind, the article I'd like to unspool today comes from The Atlantic, and it's entitled, Why Are Young People Having So Little Sex? And the subtitle of that article is, Despite the easing of taboos and the rise of hookup apps, Americans are in the midst of a sex recession. And just a quick note here, up front, there is talk of sex in this episode. Nothing graphic, but still, if that's not your thing, this might be one to skip. So that said, there are a couple of paragraphs from early on in that article which do a solid job of establishing why this is an issue worth mentioning, worth writing an article about to begin with. Quote, these should be boom times for sex. The share of Americans who say sex between unmarried adults is not wrong at all is at an all-time high. New cases of HIV are at an all-time low. Most women can, at last, get birth control for free and the morning-after pill without a prescription. If hookups are your thing, grinder and tinder, offer the prospect of casual sex within the hour. The phrase, if something exists, there is porn of it, used to be a clever internet meme. Now it's a truism. BDSM plays at the local multiplex. But why bother going? Sex is portrayed often graphically and sometimes gorgeously on primetime cable. Sexting is, statistically speaking, normal. Polyamory is a household word. Shame-laden terms like perversion have given way to cheerful-sounding ones like kink. Anal sex has gone from final taboo to, quote-unquote, fifth base. Teen Vogue, yes, Teen Vogue, even ran a guide to it. With the exception of perhaps incest and bestiality, and of course non-consensual sex more generally, our culture has never been more tolerant of sex in just about every permutation. But despite all this, American teenagers and young adults are having less sex, end quote. So to get started, where are the data points indicating that young people are having less sex coming from? That's an excellent question, and one that weighs heavily on this supposition, in my opinion. The data resources are legit. They're primarily direct numbers taken from research conducted by doctors and scientists associated with well-regarded bodies like the U.S. Center for Disease Control and the National Center for Biotechnology Information, which is part of the U.S. National Institutes of Health. There are also pieces of research gleaned from the Brookings Institute at the University of Texas, among others. A few of the data points in this piece were from less legit sources like Match.com, which does a yearly Singles in America survey to learn about single people, their habits, their opinions about dating, and so on. But most of the meat of this piece is derived from real deal research and science not the somewhat interesting but not legit, not published, not peer-reviewed stuff, which is a good thing, but that does not mean that these data points are bulletproof. It just means that they were collected competently within the confines of what we are able to collect about, let's be honest, some tricky subjects. 
I'll get more into the details of this later in the episode, but for now, it's enough to know that this isn't a claim made because of absolutely terrible data. And also, there's data from reliable sources from around the world in this piece, particularly Japan, Australia, the UK, Finland, and the Netherlands, in addition to the United States. So although there is variation in the specifics internationally, the young people today are having less sex on average than other generations did when they were this age thing seems to be fairly consistent. Now, some of these numbers are on their face, not critical sounding, and probably wouldn't even seem that surprising out of context. High schoolers in the United States, for instance, seem to be having less sex, with only 40% of high schoolers reporting that they'd had sex in 2017, compared to 54% in 1991. Similar numbers are found elsewhere. None are that dramatic in the sense of going from like 90% to 100%. But still, a 14% difference is not nothing. And the context here, that this reduction is taking place during a more sexually liberated time by many less quantifiable measures, makes that decrease seem even more intriguing when compared to a drop that aligns with some new socially conservative effort to keep young people from having sex, for instance. That might make such a decrease less surprising because we would have a clearer variable to point at as the probable instigator of change. But in this case, part of what is so fascinating is that we don't have just one clear source to point at for this change. And like the reward systems in our brains, it's likely the case that there are multiple and perhaps even a great many reasons for this shift, if indeed we are reading the numbers correctly in the first place. One possible perpetrator here are the shifts in monetary conditions that have occurred in the past few decades, and generally not in younger generations' favor. Statistically, adults under 35 are more likely to be living with their parents today than in other recent decades, and that means, well, less opportunities for sex, not to mention a non-ideal atmosphere for stimulating a sexual mood. It's also possible, though, and this explanation may seem a little out there, but it doesn't seem all that implausible to me. It's also possible that the abundance of cheap and free and readily accessible entertainment options we have in the modern world, especially on the internet, and especially on the mobile internet, which has made high-speed internet access available to many people 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, wherever they happen to be, that kind of access to that kind of media catalog, essentially all the world's knowledge, essentially every piece of culture ever created by the species, and a real-time connection to something like half the population of the planet, That's a pretty compelling alternative to just about anything, including sex, in some ways. One of the interviewees for this piece said this on the matter, quote, We would probably have a lot more sex if we didn't get home and turn on the TV and start scrolling through our phones, end quote. I'm guessing that resonates with a lot of people. The fact that, yes, sex might be great, and it might be something that our biological reward systems push us to do. But we live in a world of infinite always-on options in terms of satiating those biological hungers. And I mean that in this case in terms of being able to essentially throw those same levers, trigger those same dopamine pleasure chemical release valves via other means, by checking how many likes we got on a photo that we posted to Instagram, or watching show after show after show on Netflix. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of these things, but the economics of the tech world in particular is oriented around hijacking those neurological systems in their users, those exact same reward systems, to get us hooked on their app, their service, their gadget. And because of how effective these corporate entities have been in this regard, what was once just a clever, somewhat effective marketing strategy 
has become an ever-present reality, fighting for our attention and mental bandwidth and biological predispositions, and winning. Winning, in a lot of cases, against the options nature has provided us with, the sex and food and other, perhaps evolutionarily intended outcomes of these deep-set motivations that we experience. Beyond platonic entertainments, though, we're also living in a world in which alternative forms of sexual release, of porn and porn-like titillation, are available on demand, on various networks, accessible by just about everyone all the time, in the place and shape and form of our choosing. And what that means in practice is that, yes, we have YouTube-like networks like Pornhub that can deliver us whatever custom-desired scenario we might want to access on demand. But we also have lighter versions of the same, on Instagram, for instance, where we can see beautiful people leading airbrushed lives all day every day, which can rile us up in the same way, and provide, theoretically at least, some of the same neurological and psychological and physiological effects as building relationships with actual people in real life. These fantasy worlds, be they real-deal pornographic or just lifestyle porn, adorned with larger-than-life characters and scenarios that we find to be desirable in some way, can slake our biological thirsts, and in some cases keep us thirsty in ways that can only be quenched by more of the same. It can be tough for real-life people, other human beings who do many of the same boring things that we do, who live similar lives, experience similar ups and downs. It can be difficult for them to compete with the well-defined, caricaturized people and lifestyles portrayed on the internet on these networks and other sites. Now, this is all still theory, but it is supported by some evidence, like the 2015 study that connected falling teenage pregnancy rates and rates of sexually transmitted infections with the arrival of broadband internet in various regions. So we have evidence that suggests that in both the UK and the United States, pregnancy rates and the transmission of sexually transmitted infections dropped when teenagers and young 20-somethings got access to high-speed internet. And those numbers have been falling fairly steadily ever since. As with all research, there are caveats here, in terms of how the data was measured and reported, and who was included in the study. But it does seem to indicate that something happened when high-speed internet, the kind of connection that allows for the streaming of videos and music, and the uploading of photos and blogging and social media, arrived in these locations. An alternative explanation might be that young people suddenly had access to way more information than before, including info about things like having safer sex and STI prevention, information that is not universally available or not taught terribly well, in a lot of cases, by schools and by parents. But it seems equally likely, to me anyway, that at least part of this drop is the consequence of new, amazingly well-funded and well-produced distractions that many of us have subbed into our lives, filling up the space that romantic and sexual endeavors might otherwise occupy. Another potential correlate here between the arrival of high-speed internet and less sex is that with the internet comes access to not just porn and porn-like media, but also the availability of devices, like vibrators, which can help us more capably take care of business ourselves if we choose to do so. Research has shown that the share of men that masturbate in a given week has doubled to 54% since the 90s, which seems low to me, but again, the data here is tricky to capture accurately for a variety of reasons, and the share of women who report the same of masturbating in a given week has tripled in that same time period, up to 26%. 
and it's thought that the availability of porn in all shapes and sizes for all audiences, but also, importantly, the ability to order things like vibrators directly to one's home without having to go out to a store to buy one, and to be able to comparison shop, to do research, to read reviews, all that normal shopping stuff, but for a product that we might otherwise feel embarrassed about looking into, for whatever reason, that process has become more private and can be done with just a few clicks. A vibrator delivered right to our front door. And this is just anecdote here, but I've had more than one friend, both men and women, tell me that in recent years they date and even hook up with other people a lot less frequently than they used to, because in essence they can do the job better and more reliably themselves much of the time. And hell, they can order food to their door in that same way, so the entire dating experience can be done solo from home while watching Netflix. Not a bad deal, through some lenses. One more tech-tied explanation here revolves around the emergence of dating apps like Tinder and OkCupid and Grindr and Bumble. These apps, all of which make use of modern user interfaces and algorithms to help us find folks who are hopefully looking for someone like us, despite the sheer quantity of possibilities, the complexities of geography, and other complicating aspects of living in a globalized world, these apps have liberated some and confused the hell out of others. For folks who dated before the dawn of dating apps, this new dynamic can be confounding as novel shorthand, new social understandings, and a different pace of getting to know someone has set up shop and taken over. The process of building up the confidence to ask someone out for a drink has given way to figuring out how many back-and-forth messages you should share before moving the conversation over to SMS or into a nearby coffee shop. And in some cases, the dynamic has shifted even further, allowing folks who want sex and only sex to find others who are looking for the same, leading to an entirely new set of signals and shorthand that are more likely to be legible to digital natives, and less likely to bear any resemblance to how interactions work in the tangible, non-app world. But while there are people who have found dating apps to be marvelous, to be effective, to have opened up the possibility of finding someone or multiple someones to spend their time with, and this has been especially true for folks in the LGBTQ community who have historically had a great deal of trouble in a lot of cases meeting other people who are looking for what they are looking for, especially in smaller towns. But parallel to those sorts of success stories, there's research that indicates that many people who use dating apps find them to be inefficient and demoralizing. One interviewee for the piece in The Atlantic said that dating apps are like, quote, howling into the void for most guys, end quote, and that it's, quote, like searching for a diamond in a sea of dick pics for most girls, end quote. I did an episode a few months back about dating apps and noted in that episode that the user interfaces utilized in these apps might be part of the problem here. Yes, swiping left or right is a dead simple concept that makes flicking through a sea of faces a little bit easier, a little bit like shopping, like you're flicking through the hangers at a thrift store, certain that you're just a few more minutes away from finding that really incredible whatever, that perfect match, that gem, that diamond in the rough that you know is out there somewhere. But that same certainty, that repetitive motion, can also become an unproductive reflex. And gazing at a sea of faces, all of them fine, some standing out perhaps more than others, for whatever reason, but reducing complex people to these little face boxes on our screens that we can dismiss just as quickly as they show up, that can lead us to develop perhaps harmful reflexes when it comes to what we consider to be important when looking for a partner of whatever kind, and can lead us to, even if just subconsciously, view people as a little more disposable. 
After all, if you live in a city at least, there will always be more faces on these apps. So why stop with someone who's just above average? Why not be picky and wait until you find someone who is a 10 by your personal aesthetic estimation, rather than that solid 8 that you probably would have been thrilled to meet in real life? I'm using that kind of ranking system as a metaphor here, but these apps also sort of make such a system more real and tangible, as the algorithms that give certain profiles more prominence can influence our decisions, our perception of a good match, a good fit, a good person, an attractive person. And we can begin to sub in certain traits, like being able to take a flattering selfie or writing a quirky about section for other traits that we might otherwise have utilized while checking someone out, like how they treat other people, their accent, their real life habits and lifestyle, things that say something about how they are outside of that app-based ecosystem. So even as these apps offer us many benefits, they also require a similar number of trade-offs many of which can set us up to have adjusted standards and perhaps unrealistic expectations and which can turn some people off the dating thing entirely or cause us to take it less seriously to focus instead on things that we can control and customize more easily like our apps and games and social network presence and our porn. On top of all that, it's possible that the change in social dynamics, the change in generalized norms and expectations of communication methods and the availability of social networks and dating apps have created a cascade effect where different generations have different understandings and standards for dating, for sex, for everything, orbiting those two major components of human interaction. And as a consequence, young people are not able to learn as much as they might have otherwise from the previous generation or older members of their own generation because that advice is no longer relevant. And that applies both directly and indirectly through culture and through other knowledge dispersal mediums alongside the conversation with someone who might be able to tell you something useful. So we have less shared experience culturally to pass on, and that effect reverberates, meaning that not only are 20-somethings and teens learning less about dating and relationships and sex from their elders, they're also learning less from their peers, because their peers are also learning less from their elders and each other. The consequences of this are difficult to fully parse, and we do not have enough data to say for sure one way or another. But we do have those numbers I mentioned before about fewer people having had sex in high school. And we have data showing a decrease in romantic relationships overall amongst 17-year-olds. In 1995, 66% of boys and 74% of girls had been in a romantic relationship. But by 2014, that number had decreased to an average of 46% of all 17-year-olds having been in one. These same influences can have secondary and tertiary effects that can amplify the primary ones as well. If the examples of sex and relationships that you see in your information mediums, on Instagram, in porn, in films, are not the type of sex that you'd like to have, are not relationships that seem appealing to you and your priorities, then it makes sense that you'd be less likely to pursue those types of relationships and couplings and instead perhaps focus on other things. If you try out sex and have a bad experience, if you have a bad relationship, maybe because the other person was a jerk, but maybe because they don't know what to do, don't have great examples of how to do the relationship thing or the sex thing, if they're acting on information that they saw on Instagram and in porn, rather than real deal examples of balanced communicative growth-oriented relationships, 
then you may also be less likely to try those things again in the future. Especially, again, if there are just gobs of appealing alternative ways to spend your time, including options that will allow you to get off, to feel fulfilled, to trigger dopamine responses, and all of these things custom-fitted for you and your life and your ambitions. There's evidence that a lot of men pursue sex because they feel like it's expected of them, not because they are actually lusting after it in the biological sense. In other words, sex has become a stand-in, in some cases, for the idea of masculinity. And there's a sort of performative aspect to it for a lot of guys, because they feel like wanting all the sex, all the time, demonstrates that they are more manly, are masculine in a good way to the world. Though in a lot of cases, this tends to be performative mostly for their fellow young man, as many of these same platforms isolate us in terms of gender, especially when we're younger. And all that flexing further isolates these guys, despite all the media that they're consuming telling them that it should be otherwise. So it could be that some people are pulling back because they see all of this overcompensation and find it unappealing. It could be that more young men are calling BS on this dynamic and having less sex because, frankly, there's other stuff to do. They just don't feel compelled to act like they need sex all the time. And through that lens, the decrease in sex that is being had could be an indication that we are reaching healthier levels overall, rather than pushing ourselves nonsensically to go screw like rabbits because that's the perception of manliness that prior generations were brought up with. Or maybe you're living in a place where access to resources, to birth control, to information about STIs, to safe and reliable and attractive partners by your standards are in short supply. So despite the media-based abundance of all of these things that you're supposed to be attracted to and have access to, the real-life versions of the same are not terribly safe or terribly appealing to you. So you pursue other avenues of fulfillment instead. That's a very real possibility for a whole lot of people that these numbers are measuring. It could also be that we are simply not measuring things very well. This whole rigmarole could be a non-issue, and that there's been maybe a slight change, but that difference may not be meaningful or even accurate. To illustrate why that might be the case, let's look at the difficulties that scientists and researchers have had over the years while trying to determine average penis length. Just after World War II, Alfred Kinsey, who's a fairly well-known sexologist, tried to determine average penile length and found that the average erect length was about 6.2 inches, which is about 15.77 centimeters, and the average girth was about 4.85 inches, or around 12.32 centimeters. And because of how famous Kinsey is within his field even today, and because of how few research projects have explored this particular area, that average was used as the de facto truth for a very long time. You actually can still see it cropping up in papers today, 70 years later, despite the research that has happened since. In 1990, the condom maker Durex sponsored a penis measuring project that arrived at a different number, 6.4 and 5.2 inches for erect penises and girth, respectively, compared to 6.21 and 8.5 in Kinsey's 1948 research. There was some initial generational bragging as a consequence of this. Yay, penises are getting bigger. But then it became clear that this particular project was done in a highly non-representative way and wasn't even done according to suitable standards so that it could be replicated. 
and this experimental sketchiness led to renewed scrutiny for Kinsey's original research in this area. And it turned out that his data was equally non-representative and somewhat sketchy. He had essentially 3,500 white college-age guys come into a lab, and his team asked these men how big their dicks were. Which, I mean, if you ask a college guy how big his penis is, how accurate do you think those numbers are going to be? Somehow, these supposed measurements were just recorded as the gospel truth taking their word for it, and those almost certainly overstatements were recorded as fact for the better part of a century. Future efforts in this regard were also largely not good, but in different ways. The condom brand Lifestyles had a couple of nurses measure erect penises in a tent behind a nightclub in Cancun during spring break to try to get some more data on this subject, which meant they were able to get more accurate objective measurements because someone else other than the guy, the owner of the penis, was doing the measuring. But there's still a large amount of selection bias going on as the people willing to go into a tent to drunkenly get their junk measured are likely to be at least decently confident about what those measurements will be. But the alcohol also almost certainly influenced the outcome of that particular data set. About 25% of the volunteers were unable to get it up at all, despite the pornographic materials that they had on hand to help out. That said, this Lifestyles-funded effort dropped the average length substantially to 5.8 inches, or 14.91 centimeters long, which was an indication of things to come, as more and better research was done. The average penis length measurement dropped further in 2013 when a researcher at the Kinsey Institute decided to incentivize accurate reporting by offering to match those who were measured with a better-fitting condom based on their digits. This dropped the average length further to 5.7 inches or 14.48 centimeters. And in 2014, a researcher at King's College in London finally managed to get a study approved where there was no self-reporting at all, and all involved peni were measured by experts in non-spring break, non-drinking settings. This led to an average erect length of about 5.16 inches, or 13.1 centimeters in length, and 4.59 inches, or 11.66 centimeters in girth. Notably and commendably, this last research project was submitted along with a list of issues with the study and difficulties in getting accurate data when it comes to this topic to begin with. Different penises will be different sizes based on circumstance, on the person that they're being measured by, on whether they've been engaged in sex recently, on whether that sex was oral or non-oral. Apparently there is a measurable average difference between those two types of sex on the ambient temperature, on whether they've eaten recently, on whether they've had alcohol recently, all kinds of things. In other words, there is no one penis measurement for any one person. And as a consequence, trying to accurately measure such a thing is a game of estimates and caveats. The same is true in many ways of measuring anything related to sex. Most stats on sex, like most data that we have on penis length, are based on self-reported numbers. And that means just as different people will measure their penis based on different endpoints or using different types of arousal, there are varying ideas of what sex is, various perception of how long it lasted, lots of reasons one might under or over report, and lots of ways that we can muddle the numbers even if we have the best of intentions. Even if we were to hook people up with sex tracking devices of some kind, 
and had that kind of hard data to go on, there's a chance that wearing the device would influence the numbers, or that comparing one person's sex life to another person's sex life would not result in relevant comparisons for a variety of reasons. To say that young people are having less sex then is potentially relevant data, but potentially not. It could be that because of all the other changes that have happened in the world, happened societally, and because of all the changes in standards and norms, that there's less sex of a certain type happening between certain people. But that doesn't mean there's definitely less sex or less sex in proportion to other activities or too little sex based on how mores and folkways have shifted in the years since that last round of research was conducted. All of which means that this is interesting research and potentially useful if we can hold it up to a mirror as an excuse to assess how we're behaving, how we're interacting and engaging with ourselves and with others but not necessarily as a means of ranking or judging ourselves critically. It very well could be that the data we have now is like the data that we were using for average penis length from 1948 until very recently, which are numbers that quite possibly fueled the growth of a type of body dysmorphic disorder that had some men feeling under-equipped, like they had smaller than average and therefore, in their minds, inferior sex organs. All because of these inflated data points that were based on nonsense but collected in what was thought to be, at the time at least, a legitimate manner. So when looking at this kind of data, and any kind of data really, but especially the kind of data that might cause us to feel particularly good or bad or judgy about our own or other people's behaviors and choices, it's important to keep that context in mind. There's a lot that could be going on here. And there are a lot of ways of looking at those potentialities, both from positive and negative angles. But it could also be that there are just flaws in the foundations of the assertions being made, and that other connected but unrelated incentives, which make us want to categorize each other and ourselves and to understand why the world seems to be changing around us in at times confusing ways, could be messing with our determination of what is occurring, why, and what it all means. The book that I'd like to recommend today is a really interesting, it's somewhat long, but a very dense and interesting book that thankfully is very well written because it is a fairly complex subject matter. But the book title is A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, and the subtitle is The Stories in Our Genes. The author of that book is Adam Rutherford. And this is a book that one does a fantastic job of explaining genetics and genes and heritage and lineage and things like that. But importantly, it does a very good job of explaining why many of our perceptions, and I very much include myself in saying our perceptions, are wrong about genes and heritage and lineage and so forth. In a lot of the ways that we talk about genes and heritability and such is nonsense. And a lot of the ways that we talk about genealogy and having famous ancestors and everybody being traced back to Genghis Khan and things like that, some of these things are true through a certain lens, but usually not in the way that we typically discuss them. So if you're interested in learning more about genes and genealogy and the history of the human species, I highly recommend picking up a copy of A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived by Adam Rutherford. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. 
You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. You can find dates and information and get your tickets for my tour that I'm currently on around North America at becomingtour.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and so on. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.